What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner. On day 96 of the coronavirus crisis, we have two major breaking stories tonight. A new recommendation from the CDC on masks and Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway selling millions of shares. It has been a wild, wild week. As stocks drop, President Trump calls in big oil executives. We'll work this out and we'll get our energy business back. I'm with you a thousand percent. At the same time, American individual business owners flock to websites looking for federal help. The anxiety is high. Um, I am logging into my bank account waiting for those funds to show up. You know, I have employees to pay. Tonight, those men and women sound off as Marcus Limonis tries to help them find their path forward. I want people to have more hope. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, starts right now. Here's Scott Wapner. It is good to have you with us on this Friday night. We do start tonight with breaking news. The CDC recommending Americans wear masks in public. Let's bring in CNBC contributor Dr. Scott Gottlieb right now. He is the former FDA commissioner. Doctor, it's good to have you with us again. Your reaction to what the CDC is now recommending. Good policy. Um, There's more data that came out today. I put it up on my Twitter account about how masks can can prompt a reduction in transmission of flu and presumably coronavirus. And so this should be incrementally helpful in areas especially that are hard hit by the coronavirus where you have a lot of mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic people who are going out and potentially spreading the virus. This will cut down on their risk of transmitting the virus to others. That's going to be the biggest effect of this policy. We've talked nightly, Dr. Gottlieb, about governors who are issuing stay-at-home orders and those who are not. Tonight, the Missouri governor has issued one. Still, others are not. The president asked about it tonight, says he is leaving it up to them. Well, the federal policy amounts to um, a stay-at-home order, if you will, if the governors would follow it. And our federalist system uh, it really does fall into the hands of the governors and local officials to implement those recommendations. And some governors haven't. As you said, if you look at data in the heartland in the Midwest, you see much more travel by consumers. Consumers are not staying at home. They're going out. They're not social distancing. And those states had the ability to get a head start on this. And so far as they saw what was happening in other parts of the country and that they implemented more vigorous steps, they had more of an opportunity to prevent large outbreaks in their cities. Um, now, hopefully they will dodge, dodge it here. Hopefully they won't have a lot of spread in those parts of the country. But germ theory being what it is, this virus wants to go everywhere. And so I fear that no state is going to be completely spared by this. You're seeing in the models tonight some um, slowing in new cases in the Northeast and New England, particularly New York. New York's going to have another tough week, and hospitalizations and deaths, unfortunately, are going to lag new cases. But new cases may start to slow next week, 
and you may see New York start to hit a peak. The attention is going to start to shift to the southeast and the Sun Belt, where you're going to see cases start to grow very quickly. Louisiana looks very bad tonight, um, and Texas, Georgia, Florida all have to be areas of concern right now. That's exactly what you tweeted earlier. In fact, you say some of the models, including the one that the White House watches, are showing some signs of slowing, including this area and up in New England, as you say. Still very worrisome, though. Detroit, Los Angeles, New Orleans, Miami, Georgia, Texas. They need to be uh, watching things very closely in the coming days. What will you be watching for, Dr. Gottlieb, over the weekend? Well, I think you continue to look at the new cases and make, see what the time uh, that it takes for the states to double the number of cases. Right now, Louisiana is doubling every three days. Florida is doubling every four in terms of the total cases in those states. The other thing to look at is the testing and the positivity rate. A lot of states still aren't testing a lot. Texas is testing 0.19% of their population. Georgia is about 0.17%. That compares to New York, which leads the nation at about 1.25% of tests. They're testing their population at a rate of uh, 1.25%. So you look at the rates by which states are testing their populations. And if you see states not testing a lot of the people within their state, but nonetheless having a high positivity rate and mounting cases, that's a bad combination. That means that there's probably a lot of undiagnosed infections. And that, in fact, is what it looks like right now in states like Louisiana and Florida, Certainly Louise, uh, Los Angeles and Detroit also look concerning, but those were cities that implemented mitigation steps earlier. And so you hope that over the next week or two, you're going to start to see the benefits of the steps that they took to try to slow the spread. Dr. Gottlieb, how should the federal government be handling its stockpile of ventilators? And I'm wondering what you would be recommending if you were still in the seat at the FDA. The president tonight saying we happen to think he's well served with ventilators. Speaking of the New York governor who says they need ventilators, the president holding them back for when he needs them, he says. Is that a good strategy? Well, I mentioned that um, New York is going to show signs of potentially peaking in their epidemic, perhaps as early as this week or maybe into next week. But there's no model that shows New York not exhausting their health care resources. Every model, even the conservative one, shows New York exhausting the number of ICU beds that they have available and exhausting the number of ventilators that they have available. New York is going to be very hard hit, and there's a lot of morbidity. If you look at what's happening in New York now, and we don't fully understand why the morbidity in terms of people who are requiring ICU admissions and people who are succumbing to the virus is actually ahead of where Italy was at a, at a commensurate stage in their epidemic. And that might be because we have more um, people who are high risk in New York, more of an elderly population, more people with comorbid illness. So New York's healthcare system is going to be overwhelmed by any scenario. The feds don't have a lot left. The feds have been largely tapped out. They're holding on to a small number of ventilators relative to their total stockpile. They've depleted more than half their stockpile. Um, they probably are recognizing that they're going to need to pour resources also into New Orleans and Florida and potentially other states in the southeast and the Sun Belt as the epidemic shifts to other parts of the country. So I suspect that they want to hold on to some of those resources. I would be counseling moving what you can and what you have into New York right now. You can always shift those resources out of New York later if you have to. But right now you need to backstop the city that's having the biggest public health tragedy. And that's New York right now. New York is dangerously close to depleting their health care resources going into this week. To be clear, you would be pre telling the president tonight to give New York more ventilators. Well, I have been saying that. I think we should put the resources where they're needed at the moment with the hope that you can shift them around later as those parts of the country start to recover. I don't think that we should be holding back resources if cities are coming up against their 
their um, limit in terms of what they have available to treat patients. Now, that said, New York still has capacity left. They're converting about 3,000 BiPAP machines into ventilators. These are breathing machines, assisted breathing devices that can be converted into ventilators under a protocol that they just approved. And they still have about 1,000 ventilators in their own stockpile that that they're going to be forward deploying and another 300 that moving from upstate into the city. But that's not a lot. They're burning ventilators at a rate of around 300 a day. So after about another week, they're going to deplete what they have available. So going into the end of this week and into the following week, they'll be maxed out. Um, Time on ventilator is is long. Patients are staying on the ventilators for 10 days, sometimes more, um, depending on what hospital you talk to. And the mortality rate, once people get intubated, is very high. Now, the CDC has not published statistics on this yet, and they ought to be publishing that soon on what the collected clinical experience is in the United States. But when I talk, talk to hospital leaders about their experience inside individual hospitals, both in New York and other parts of the country, they're saying that 70 to 80 percent of people who get intubated with COVID-19 ultimately succumb to the infection. That's very high. Dr. Gottlieb, we appreciate your time as always. Enjoy the weekend. We'll see you on the other side of it. Thanks a lot. That's Dr. Scott Gottlieb once again with us tonight. And there is another breaking story tonight. Billionaire investor Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway selling massive amounts of airline stock. Phil LeBeau joins us now with that story. Phil? Scott, this news came out late this afternoon. And here's what Berkshire Hathaway did. They sold some of their position with Delta and Southwest. And the reason they had to disclose this in an SEC filing is because they had above 10% of uh, the shares and they had to go below 10%, which required them to announce that they were selling. Now, we don't know their final position in terms of what uh, any other stock moves they may have made with other airline stocks uh, that they own. We have reached out to uh, Berkshire Health Hathaway. We have not heard a response from them, which is not uncommon. Whenever they make a move regarding particular stock, they never say why they decided to either buy or sell that stock. But this move comes on a day when the big six airlines and other airlines as well have all applied to the federal government for a piece of the $25 billion in cash grants that will be awarded to them sometime over the next week to week and a half uh, from the federal government. They have all filed those applications. We're not sure who's going to end up with how much or what the, the position will be from the federal government in terms of taking stock warrants or some kind of a stake in each of the airlines. But what's noteworthy is two announcements today, one from Delta CEO Ed Bastian, where he announced that they have applied for this uh, application, or they, they filed the application for grants, and yet at the same time he says, look, we're still bleeding cash. They're going through $60 million a day, and it's not much better at the other airlines. JetBlue CEO Robin Hayes also announcing that they've applied for the federal cash grant. They're going through $10 million in cash per day. And to give you some sense, Scott, that things may not improve in the future, today, United filed an SEC uh, 8K, and in it they said that their fourth quarter projection, fourth quarter, is that revenue will be down 30%. That's with a recovery. That's the kind of recovery they're looking at, Scott. 30% drop in revenue as of right now. That's what they're expecting in the fourth quarter. Just incredible. Phil LeBeau, thank you so much. You have a good weekend as well. For more on the markets and a look ahead to next week, let's get to Stephanie Link joining us now. Steph, it's good to see you. We haven't heard from Mr. Buffett recently. Now we do, and it's about selling millions of shares. Is that a sign of his belief, do you think, of the market at large and where it may be going? 
Well, I think it's really airline specific because this industry, this is just a tragedy, a tragedy um, in terms of what they're going through and what kind of help they need. Scott, just back in January, January 14th, Delta reported they blew away numbers. They said leisure and corporate travel were at all time highs. They uh, talked about their Amex partnership and how much revenue that was generating. They have very they have very little exposure to the max. So they were viewed as one of the best and how the mighty have fallen just in a couple of months' time. This is one of the reasons why it's so hard to actually invest in the airlines, because they are so cyclical. They are so macro-dependent. But this is really incredible. These stocks are down 60%. They trade at three times earnings. Obviously, people don't believe those earnings. Um, But this is like there's no visibility in sight. So I can completely understand why you walk away even down this much. Even if you're Warren Buffett. Steph, take a look towards next week. Tell us what you're going to be looking for. Oh, gosh. I mean, next week, it's all going to be about progress on the pandemic, right? And to continue to see if the Fed's QE is providing enough liquidity. I was really encouraged by credit spreads this week thawing out a little bit. But we do need better data on the pandemic. And I don't think we're going to get it next week. I think we're going to get it in the coming weeks because we do have more tests and social distancing. And now the CDC recommendation on the masks. So I do think eventually this is going to stabilize, Scott. But I've said all along, the volatility continues until we see a peak in virus sales. So the next thing I'm watching, though, is that bond market. We have to see continued stabilization. I'm encouraged by that alone this week. More volatility next week, likely. Steph, thank you so much. That's Stephanie Link joining us tonight. There is much more ahead on this CNBC special report. Markets in turmoil. It feels really unreal. Next tonight, coping with the sudden shock of losing your livelihood. Plus, the path forward. Individual business owners on whether the government's bid to help, starting today with loan help, worked or failed. Before the break, images from around the country on day 96 of the coronavirus crisis. big idea that's inspired countless new ones from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives 30 years ago state street launched the spider s&p 500 etf spy a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does what can you do with spy before investing consider the funds investment objectives risks charges and expenses visit ssga.com for a prospectus containing this and other information read it carefully before investing spy is subject to risks similar to those of stocks all etfs are subject to risk including possible loss of principal alps distributors inc distributor Welcome back. This crisis has brought on a tremendous amount of economic pain and for millions, the loss of their income. Here's stylist Alicia Rivera tonight in her own words. It feels really unreal, like you're watching a movie. Typically, I'd be seeing about 40 guests a week and now I'm seeing zero. Like a really good week would be over 2,000 maybe 25, and that includes tips. So how long can you survive without making anything? And I've been trying to file for unemployment since last Tuesday. 
the website is either crashing or will not pull up the file that I need. I was on hold today for eight hours. No one picked up. That would pay half of my rent, my utilities. That would be a little bit of a breather for a month. You know, then you just have to worry about groceries. When am I going to be able to make a living? Pay my bills? Will some businesses not survive this or, or you know, there'll be thousands of people trying to find jobs if some businesses close due to this. So it's really scary. Many Americans hurting tonight. That is Alicia Rivera in her own words. Here is where we stand this evening on the virus. As we told you at the top of the hour, the CDC making a major announcement telling Americans to wear masks in public. New York State records its highest single day death toll, 562 since this crisis began. And Delta seeing its revenue falling 90 percent in the second quarter, as Phil LeBeau was reporting. We do have breaking news tonight from Washington, where the president just spoke about his battle today with 3M over the production of masks. Also in the news conference this evening, reimbursement for hospitals treating coronavirus victims who don't have health insurance. Our Eamon Javers covering both stories tonight from Washington. Eamon? Yes, Scott, and that hospital announcement could be something that's really reassuring to a lot of Americans without insurance. The president saying tonight in the briefing room that the U.S. government is going to pick up the tab for those people who are being treated with coronavirus symptoms in hospitals across the country. They're going to do that out of a $100 billion fund that was in the latest so-called CARES Act, the big stimulus bill that passed last week, that the president's saying that ultimately he doesn't want Americans to feel uh, that they can't get the health care that they need at this time. Meanwhile, as you say, that fight continuing to go on between 3M and the United States government and the Trump administration over whether or not 3M is doing enough, uh, as the government says it's not, to provide health equipment to Americans. Here's the back and forth that took place today, in part on CNBC, between Mike Roman, the CEO of 3M, and the president of the United States in the briefing. Take a listen. The idea that 3M is not doing all it can to fight price gouging and unauthorized reselling is absurd. Uh, The narrative that we are not doing everything we can to maximize delivery of respirators in our home country, nothing could be further from the truth. We are doing everything we can to maximize our efforts and to fight COVID-19 and to support the healthcare workers here at home in the U.S. I don't blame them. They can push back if they want. We're not happy with 3M. We're not happy. And the people that dealt with it directly are not at all happy with 3M. So we'll see whether or not we do. I heard what he had to say today. I don't know the gentleman, but we're not happy with 3M. And, Scott, that war of words continues tonight in The New York Times in an article that was just updated at 7 p.m. Peter Navarro, the White House trade advisor, has blistering criticism for 3M. Listen to what he says. He says, all we get from the CEO on down to the head of their PR department is lie upon lie, the latest of which, which is dead wrong, is that we demanded 3M not send production from its U.S. plants to our friends and allies in Canada and Mexico. That is the blistering criticism from Peter Navarro tonight of 3M. So that war of words continues into the weekend, Scott, and we'll see where we land on Monday. Back over to you. Eamon, we appreciate it very much. That's Eamon Javers reporting for us tonight. Professor James E. Baker of Syracuse University's College of Law has researched the Defense Production Act and says the president has a lot more power then he's using. He's with us tonight. Sir, it's good to have you here. Who is in the right here? Is it the president or is it 3M? Well, thank you, Scott. I, I think the question presented for me as a national security specialist and lawyer is not who is right or wrong in the 3M dispute, 
but how can the federal government best use the authority it has to mobilize the nation to fight the COVID-19 virus? And I worry that focus on a particular aspect of one contract or another will distract us from the most important message, which is the federal government should use all the authority it possesses to mobilize the nation. And it happens that there is a law, the, the Defense Production Act, that gives the federal government all the authority it needs. Now, what happens with the 3M dispute is it focuses all the attention on just one provision of the Defense Production Act at the expense of the others. Would you mind if I outlined what those authorities are? Nope. There are four authorities that should be brought to bear immediately now so we can close the gap between what the governors are saying they need and what the current rate of supply is. There is the prioritization authority, as you know, and as 3M well knows, which allows the government to step in and say, we want you to prioritize this contract over that contract or the other one. It happens that the Defense Department uses this authority some 300,000 times a year. So it's not a particularly extraordinary authority in that regard. But here are the other authorities that we must not lose sight of. There's the allocation authority. This allows the federal government to step in and allocate equipment and supplies across the country, between states, for example, so states don't have to compete with each other in the marketplace for the same ventilator. This would allow the federal government to allocate based on public health need, not market mechanisms. In addition, if there happens to be a raw material that is scarce and needed for masks, mm -hmm. the masks we're all going to be wearing now, the federal government can step in and make sure that that material goes to this factory rather than that factory. I understand, but let me ask you a question. Let me, let me ask you a question, and forgive me for interrupting. Sure. Should a U.S.-based company in a crisis like this be exporting any of its product outside of the United States, regardless who our allies are at whatever time. This is a national emergency in the United States. Should 3M be shipping any of their masks outside to Canada or Latin America? Well, that's why I want to look at it holistically, because I, am, I can't answer that question until we step back and look at the greater whole. The question is not whether China should have masks or Canada should have masks and not the United States. Well, should the government have, the, on, should the, government have the authority to tell 3M all of your masks produced in the United States need to stay in the United States right now because this is a national emergency? Or should a private enterprise have the right to say, we are keeping our agreements because we think that it could hurt the U.S. in the long run if there's re retaliation? That's the point I need to get to, and then I, I'm, I'm afraid I have to go. Sure. Well, the, the question is, the authority is there, but the goal here should be to make sure all health, all health workers have masks, not just American health workers. A pandemic, pandemic is necessarily a global emergency, not just a New York emergency, not just a U.S. emergency. The Defense Production Act would allow the government to incentivize more American companies to step in and build these masks. That's exactly what the government right. should be doing now. Professor? Not beating up 3M, but getting more people, more companies to build masks and start tooling up 
for the vaccine to come. Mr. Baker, That's what I'm about. I, I appreciate your time this evening. Thank you so much. That's James E. Baker joining us. Up next, the path forward. Three business owners, all applying for federal help in the middle of this horrible crisis. Next, their fears and frustrations and the path forward. Business leader Marcus Lemonis joins as well in a bid to help get American business back on its feet. The CNBC special report, The Path Forward, is coming right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. The path forward will not be short. It will not be without pain. For America's individual business owners, the challenge is already well underway. From finding money, paying rent, to taking care of employees. And now, the stress of getting much-needed loans from a government program designed to keep these businesses alive. Tonight, business owners tell us their stories and problems. And the prophet, Marcus Lemonis, tries to help them find the path forward. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. Good to have you back with us tonight. The Small Business Administration's stimulus loan program got off the ground today. It has not been a smooth liftoff, however. Our Kayla Tausche in Washington following that story for us. Kayla, good evening. Good evening, Scott. Most small businesses lining up to get this money are still waiting after a spotty rollout that will see most major banks not able to offer these loans until at some point in the middle of next week. For companies with fewer than 500 employees, they received about $3.5 billion in payroll loans today. That's 1% of the amount allocated. Bank of America alone received applications for $22 billion, but came under fire for servicing only longtime borrowers. Chase's website crashed upon launch, and Wells Fargo, PNC, and Citigroup say they need more time. Many communities were left frustrated, too. Farmers Bank and Trust on the Texas-Arkansas border was not a preferred SBA lender and worries that the money will run out before it can even access the site. Dave White runs the loan program there and emails me this evening to say this. Our bank estimates 35 to $45 million in requests to small businesses that desperately need it. Until SBA gives the Main Street banks the ability to get a username and password to access the portal easily, the rank-and-file population see this as a big bank-type grab, and the local small banks are all at fault. I have never felt more defeated as a banking professional in my life. 
Executives say a program like this would normally take about a year to get off the ground, but the urgency of this need necessitated the seven-day turnaround. President Trump, for his part tonight, says he thinks the rollout was a success. More than $3.5 billion in guaranteed loans have been processed to help small businesses keep their workers employed. Our banking partners are really incredible, and they're ensuring that the money gets to small businesses as quickly as possible, and then the small business, in turn, take care of employees that they would have had to let go, and now they'll keep them. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi today on CNBC started talking about a fourth emergency relief package. She said that this amount that has been provided is just a down payment and that it's clear small businesses need more. Scott? Kayla, we appreciate it. Kayla Tausche from Washington for us tonight. Let's bring in now Camping World Chairman and CEO and the host of CNBC's The Profit and the owner of dozens of businesses, Marcus Limonis. Marcus, it's good to see you again. How are you, Scott? I'm well, thank you. Hardly a smooth liftoff, though, as we said for this program. Your reaction to how we've started here? You know, I, I, I'm going to be on the other side of this, probably and surprise some people. I think the fact that three and a half billion dollars moved in a week is a pretty big deal. And I spoke to a lot of big banks and a lot of small banks today, and unfortunately, a lot of business owners who are upset. And the architecture to actually execute all of this is a lot harder than people would think. We don't want money just flowing out as fast as it possibly can. I think the big banks want to make sure that they're dotting their I's and crossing their T's, and I don't blame them for that. They don't want to get hung with anything. Did it go off uh, you know, smoothly? No. But did $3.5 billion still get processed? Yes. And I would expect that over the weekend, the banks will have a chance to catch up. Come Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you're going to see a lot more money flow. And here's what I would ask small businesses today. Uh, until you get the money in your account, stop writing checks. And I, I had a couple of businesses today tell me that they wrote checks and now they don't know if they're going to clear. So the message is everybody needs to be patient. This is seven days that this has actually gone down. The money's going to come, but it's not going to come in five minutes. You mentioned the challenges that exist. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce did a survey, Marcus, said one quarter of small businesses have already closed. Another 40 percent say it's likely they'd have to close in the next two weeks. Another poll suggested that half of all small businesses didn't pay rent on April 1st, on Monday of this week. That tells you how dire the situation is and how badly these businesses and these business owners need money. Yeah, let me start with the last point you made, which is a lot of small businesses didn't pay rent. I would bet that a lot of medium and big businesses did also skip paying rent this week because they're trying to preserve cash. When we talk about the businesses that have closed, while it's awful, we want to remember that a lot of businesses have closed because of shelter in place or there were restaurants and bars. And so as these facts and figures roll out, we want to get a deeper understanding of what's actually happening. Yes, businesses are closed. Employees are laid off. And what I'm asking business owners to do today in this moment between now and the time they get their SBA money is let's walk our employees who are furloughed, who have been laid off through the process so they can get all of their money. It isn't just about the business owner getting their money. We want to make sure these employees that unfortunately got laid off are able to go through the CARES Act, get their unemployment checks processed, get their $1,200 processed. And I think we got to just take a pause and make sure we're taking care of the employees first and not, and not losing sight of that. And lastly, yes, you are the profit. But as we said, you are the chairman and CEO of Camping World. Did I see a tweet of yours today that said you offered campers to New York City 
and that you haven't heard back? So we have uh, actually sold close to 700 units across the country. California took about 560. In getting a lot of requests from friends and, and, and business associates in New York, uh, I reached out through Twitter offering up to 200 units uh, at no charge for the city to use them. I did hear back about an hour ago uh, from people from the mayor's office and the governor's office that they don't need them yet, but they appreciated the fact that they know that with a phone call we can deploy these RVs into Manhattan and uh, people, at least the volunteers and the uh, first responders will have a chance to rest, eat, sleep, do whatever they need to. So, yeah, we want to be there for everybody right now. Nice of you to do that and glad to hear that uh, you did hear back, uh, even if it was just uh, recently. Thank you very much. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back with Marcus Limonis because up next, we're bringing in three American business owners, all applying for loans today. Their experiences next. First, though, images from around the world on day 96 of this pandemic. Welcome back for our Path Forward. With us tonight, three business owners, Ashley Kleinschmidt, Alex Smith, and Eric Casaburi, who we met last week, and of course, the prophet, Marcus Limonis. Marcus, it's yours. Thank you, Scott. Uh, for the three of you that are out there, thanks so much for joining us tonight. I know that it's been probably a frustrating week and definitely a frustrating day. Uh, we've heard from everybody. The one thing we're not going to do is avoid manners in this moment. And so, Ashley, I'd like to talk to you first about what's happening in your business and tell me a little bit about the frustrations you had today. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Um, you know, the first week I had to lay off my entire team, my six girls, my employees and cut down their part-time hours. So that was the first frustrating part of all of this for me and having to close down my store. Um, and, you know, we've been pivoting to find different ways to have, you know, our sales that we were usually used to. Um, but now it's applying for the loans. The loans haven't really worked out for us so far, but fingers crossed. Well, I want you to be a little more optimistic about the loans. I spoke to senior folks at Chase later this afternoon, earlier this afternoon, and they're very confident that the system glitches are going to get worked out. So I'm confident that if you put all your information right, you're going to get the loan that, quite frankly, you deserve. In terms of pivoting, I noticed that you're doing a lot on Instagram. And what advice are you giving other business owners about how they have to reinvent themselves in this moment to try to find some source of revenue? And then most importantly, what are you doing to help your employees bridge the gap between now and you know, when they come back uh, in the future? Sure. Um, I mean, right now, social media has been a really great platform for us. Um, it's really opened my eyes to just think of the future as well, of all the ways we can really connect with clients, not only locally, but across the U.S. Now we've we've started to um, offer virtual makeup classes where women can take 
45 minutes to an hour just to connect with us and learn how to do their makeup. I mean, feeling good during this time can definitely help. And so I've really been focusing on doing a lot of virtual consultations um, and just connecting with our clients that way. Um, I'm I'm really guiding my, my team to really just work on their social media, connect with our clients, um, do the makeup classes. And it's helping us stay sane, I think, through all of this and to keep our eye on the prize, because when we get back, you know, we're really looking forward to being around our customers again. The one thing that I'm going to tell you and I'll tell Alex and Eric uh, all together now is that there is a lot of information out there uh, for employees um, in terms of how they're going to collect unemployment and what the money is going to be and how all the money is going to flow to them. And I would encourage all of you to use this weekend and, and, and almost every day, actually, to try to figure out how to show them the roadmap. In fact, I'll post something tonight on my Twitter account that gives you a really basic example of what kinds of things they can be doing. Because the same way you're trying to apply for a loan from a bank, those folks are also looking for sources of income. In terms of how you're operating your business today, I'll give you a couple pieces of advice. Number one, I want you to hold on to as much cash as you can and really make sure that you make the right decisions about what you're paying first versus second. And the second thing is when the money does come in from your bank, I want you to be very thoughtful. I want to remind you that it's a loan. It's not a gift. And there's ways to, to make that loan disappear over time. But there is a, the severity of the fact that it is a loan and you do have to have um, a plan. Have you thought about what you're going to spend the money on? Um, I mean, luckily with my landlord, they've been willing to, you know, they, they said to me, we're in this all together. So that was really, really nice to hear. So um, I think I need to really go down the list of what priority bills I have is really what I was planning on doing and prioritizing what should be paid off first. Um, I obviously need to keep it for me. Yeah. And I'd like you to do that sooner than later. I don't want you to wait until you get the money. I want you to go in with a real solid plan of this is how much I'm applying for. I would back that off by 10 or 15%. Who knows what's going to happen here and really understand how that money's going to flow, okay? Yeah, that sounds great. And I want you to keep your head up. It's, it's, we're all going to get through this. What you provide is beauty, and all of us guys want women to stay beautiful and um, <laughs> just be confident that everything's going to work out here. You just got to hunker down for a minute, okay? Let's move over to Eric. Um, we were just, Ashley and I were just talking about landlords you're actually playing two roles in this economy. One is a landlord, one is a business owner. What's happened since the last time you and I talked? So Marcus, to your point earlier, the breadth and the depth of this is enormous what's happening. I mean, the SBA process is normally $28 million a year in SBA loans, and they're about to do 350 billion, I'm sorry, 28 billion uh, in a year, and they're gonna do 350 billion. It's in 90 days, and it's probably gonna happen in a lot less than that. It's just insane to imagine how that's gonna happen. Um, so in talking to tenants this morning, all morning, all day on the, on the phone with tenants, you're right, April 1st has come and gone, and some tenants have actually paid. Uh, some tenants we've made arrangements with, and some tenants have not paid in, in some of my uh, particular real estate. Uh, on the flip side, I've talked to uh, landlords and colleagues of mine, some of whom I'm tenants with myself, and what are the arrangements? You know, and I, I ran a payroll this week. I ran a payroll for one of my companies. You know, we kept everybody on. We're trying to do the right thing to make sure we are properly uh, have our ducks aligned for the, for the right processing of the PPP loan. Uh, it, but it, it's hard. It's hard to watch that go out when, when you see zeros all across, you know, when, when you look at what's happening in the bank account. Uh, it's challenging on both sides. And, and the stories are all identical. Everyone has been diligent. They're trying to get these loans. So it's not like people are sitting on their hands. Everyone I have spoken to, 
All of us have done all of the proper and appropriate things. The challenge is, is the regulations are shifting, as you know. As of last night at 8.30, another regulation changed from the SBA. So the banks are kind of like, hey, sorry, but, and we're working on this. Here's the application. Again, refill it out. One or two things have changed. But you got to just roll with those punches. As a business owner, you have to just follow the, and toe the line that they're, they're throwing out to you. Yeah, and I think the most important thing is, and people aren't going to like it when I say this, the banks are not the enemy in this process right now. They're trying to facilitate these SBA loans, and they're operating from the same playbook that you and I are, which is no playbook. And they're being asked to process loans with right. a single piece of paper application. And I think it's trying to make sure that they keep some regulatory process involved, some, some validation process involved so that everybody isn't scammed through this process. I'm worried that there are going to be a portion of people who have either closed or about to recently close that may gain the system. So the fact that the banks are taking an extra day or two to put the bells and whistles and the suspenders around everything, I'm not as upset as some other people are. I don't know if you necessarily agree or disagree with that. I 100% agree with you. Right before we, we got on this segment tonight, uh, again, I was on the phone with, with close banker friends of mine that are, that are doing these loans. These are the guys that are on the other side. They're working for these community banks, and some of them are doing uh, larger-scale banking. And the same thing was, hey, Eric, listen, we just, we just don't know what's going on. We're all in uncharted waters, but we've never done a loan, especially an SBA loan, and not had a tremendous amount of documentation. And I personally have been through quite a few SBA loans since you know, I started in business. And they are in, that process is insanely long, especially for an impatient person. And at a time like this, what they're trying to do in such a short period of time, I, 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 I frankly, Marks, I don't know how they're going to do it. It's, it's, if they pull it off, and I'm, and I'm rooting positive that they are, but there is going to be some scrupulous people that may take advantage of this process. These banks don't want to get caught in the middle, and I understand that because they're a business also. So everyone has to do their diligence, including these bankers that are going to be helping us next week. And that's really the line is, hey, we're going, to, we're going to be doing this next week. It looks like middle of the week next week is the day I'm here and Wednesday, Thursday. A lot of the banks I'm talking to, you know, the TD Bank, the Center State Bank, the community banks, they're going to start hammering away at this in the middle of the week next. That this process requires respect and it requires everybody to go through this process. And so when I hear about business owners or sending nasty emails, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't want to see any of that kind of stuff. <laughs> People are, are trying to make this work for everybody. And, and as you think about it, we're all struggling right now. And let's go to Alex. Alex, uh, we know you own restaurants all over the country. Can you give us a synopsis of where your restaurants are located? Sure. Thanks for having me on, Marcus. So we're uh, located predominantly in Maryland. Um, we're also in Texas and Florida. And we're currently, we have 15 properties, 14 are out of operation, and uh, one is still currently in operation. And Alex, are you doing any takeout business, or did you say your 14 restaurants are actually closed completely? 14 out of the 15 are closed. We have one uh, that was a diner-type carryout business uh, that was doing carryout before, so we kept that model. Um, it's been very tough. We, we never tried the takeout model, but it was just, in our belief, not sustainable. Um, and you're seeing restaurants all over the country that started to do that. Uh, now going away from it. Um, it's just a tough model for the fine dining business. How many employees did you have to furlough? We furloughed 1,000 employees uh, on, uh, wow. it was Monday, March 16th. Um, and it's just been absolutely devastating. Yeah. Can you walk me through what you're doing as part of this SBA loan process? I'm not going to ask you for any of your numbers. I know you have a very big business. 
Can you walk me through how you approached it, how you looked at it, and, and ways that you think it could potentially benefit you in the long run? Sure. So um, the first thing we've done recently is we put all of our PPP applications in today. Um, we think that uh, that'll cover, hopefully, uh, eight weeks uh, of payroll for our Atlas family and extended furlough uh, employees. Um, but once again, uh, there's just a lot of unknowns. The guidance uh, changed all day today and, and last night. Um, we got all of our, our paperwork in this afternoon, but there's just a lot of unknowns right now. So we're going for that, yeah. and uh, we're going for a few SBA loans to uh, basically help us with startup expenses so we can get to the other side of this thing. I know, Scott, you've been hearing stories all day from people about this. And that's where I, I really wanted to pick up. Um, you know, the restaurant business, Alex, is a, is a tough business even in good times. You have a lot of restaurants. I'm just wondering how you envision the other side of this, whether 15 becomes 7, or if you're confident that on the other side of this, with these loans and other things that you may be able to do, that you'll still be intact fully. So good question. Um, you know, we were in a position where we were fortunate. Uh, all of our properties made money uh, before this crisis. So our number one priority is first taking care of our family members. Um, and by that, I mean my the thousand people we furloughed. Our goal is to figure out a way to get them through this, uh, to make sure they're compensated somehow. And PPP has been great. Um, and then take care of our core team members who can basically see us through this. And that way, when, you know, our governors and in, in, in the various states that we're in say go, um, those team members that are, that are still with us today can get everybody back up and running and we can get this engine started again. Alex, one nuance, and I guess this applies for everybody, one nuance that I would encourage everybody to look at is we know that the employees that are furloughed have an opportunity to go collect some benefits, a, a heightened unemployment amount. They're going to get a check for hopefully $1,200 or more based on their family scenario. One of the things that I've been talking to people about when they get this money, not before, but when they get this money, is to potentially allocate a portion of it to give uh, those employees with the deepest, most dire hardships advances. Give them a chance if they've been with you four, five, six, ten years and you know they're good for it, to use some of that money as advances. And I know that that may not be a popular idea right now, but if, if they're going to collect unemployment benefits and they need extra cash, has anybody, any of the three of you, maybe Ashley or anybody else, thought about this idea of using some of that money, a very small amount, to give them advances to get them to the other side? Yeah, it's something I thought about for sure. And, and how, how would you approach that in your particular business? Do you mind talking about that? Sure. Um, I mean, the girls, um, there's a few that have worked for me for a long period of time. So um, we've already had a little bit of a discussion on ways that I could help them. Um, and it's something I've been thinking about. You know, I don't know the actual details of it, but I know that, you know, they're they're my my girls have worked with me for the last six years of me opening my business. I can't imagine what they're going through. I know I'm going through a lot and, you know, we're a family. So whatever I can do to right. keep them. You know, and I, I want them to come back. I want them to come back to my shop. So if I can help them Absolutely. in any way. So. Well, for all three of you, thank you for joining me tonight. And for every other small business in America, I know we'll get through this. This loan process seems frustrating today. It won't in a couple of weeks. And we're just going to have to hold on and make those sacrifices. And we know that America is going to show up again in our businesses and support us. So thank you. We appreciate all of you being here. Marcus, very quickly for you, is $350 billion going to be enough? Or are we going to need another one of these? 
I don't know. I have to be honest. I was doing a little calculation today, and I, I want to be careful that we don't just assume that this is an endless pot. $350 billion is a lot of money. We have a $16 trillion GDP. I don't know exactly what small business makes that up. Uh, if we do need it, I think we need to really focus on what industries need it the most. Right. I'm very concerned about the restaurant business and the hospitality business. Very sure. concerned about that. For sure. Marcus, thank you so much for your time this evening. You have a good weekend. Everybody do the same, please. Thank you so much for telling your stories tonight. Have a good weekend. Stay safe. I'm Scott Wapner. Undercover Boss is next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.